You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the 420th episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. As y'all will recall, with last week's episode, we got a start on the Chattanooga story arc. We saw how, after the Battle of Chickamauga, the Federals pulled back to Chattanooga itself, while the Confederates slowly advanced and occupied the high ground looking down on the town. We said that for both army commanders, Braxton Bragg and William Rosecrans, the key issue in the aftermath of the Battle of Chickamauga was logistics. The Confederate commanding general, Braxton Bragg, didn't have enough wagons, and so it was a stretch even transporting supplies to the Army of Tennessee from the railhead at Catoosa Station, just a dozen miles away. And then, in pulling back to Chattanooga and giving up the high ground that looked down on the town and the Tennessee River, the Federals were also giving up the most direct line of supply back to their bases in Bridgeport and Stevenson in northwest Alabama. That meant that now, getting supplies into Chattanooga would be extremely difficult and time-consuming. Less than five days after the end of the Battle of Chickamauga, after his forces had finished pulling back to Chattanooga, William Rosecrans, the commander of the Army of the Cumberland, reported to Washington that he had only 10 days' worth of rations on hand. For three days following the Battle of Chickamauga, a brigade of federal infantry remained on Lookout Mountain, which loomed grandly over the Tennessee River Valley, just to the southwest of Chattanooga. Lookout Mountain commanded the main rail and wagon routes to Chattanooga from the west, that is, from the direction of the Yankees' supply depots just across the state line, over in northwest Alabama. Because of Lookout Mountain's importance with regard to the federal supply line into Chattanooga, some of William Rosecrans' subordinates voiced strong objections when, on September 24th, Old Rosie withdrew the brigade that had been occupying the mountain. However, in Rosecrans' opinion, he simply didn't have enough troops to extend his lines far enough out to include Lookout Mountain, 
So the men that had occupied that key high ground were pulled back to join the rest of the army, which was busy digging in and preparing lines of entrenchments to protect Chattanooga. The Confederates immediately accepted the gift of Lookout Mountain, seizing the high ground along the summit of the ridge and pushing troops into the valley beyond to the banks of the Tennessee River. By denying the Yankees the use of the Nashville and Chattanooga Railroad and the main wagon road back to their supply bases, the rebel occupation of Lookout Mountain and the valley beyond cut the Federals' only really practical line of supply. So now, to keep his army from starving, Rosecrans would be compelled to devise an alternate supply route into Chattanooga. As the Confederates occupied the high ground looking down on Chattanooga, placing the town under a virtual siege, the soldiers of the Army of Tennessee and the Army of the Cumberland warily eyed each other. Federal Brigadier General John Beatty noted, quote, The two armies are lying face to face. The Federal and Confederate sentinels walk their beats in sight of each other. The tents of the troops dot the hillsides. We see their signal lights on the summit of Lookout Mountain and on the knobs of Missionary Ridge. As the two armies settled into place at Chattanooga, in Washington, the pressing issue was how to reinforce the Army of the Cumberland. Abraham Lincoln was sending encouraging words across the telegraph wires, trying to buck up the obviously shaken Rosecrans. But Lincoln, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, and General-in-Chief Henry Halleck all realized that more than encouraging words would need to be sent if the Federals were going to hold on to Chattanooga. Stanton's man on the scene was Assistant Secretary of War Charles Dana. After Chickamauga, Dana's reports from Chattanooga painted a grim picture and invariably depicted Rosecrans in the worst possible light. Dana's telegrams caused intense anxiety in Washington as did Rosecrans' own messages in the days following the battle, which reflected the demoralized and exhausted general's inner struggle as he vacillated between determination to hold Chattanooga and doubts that was even possible. However, Lincoln, Stanton, and Halleck wanted Chattanooga held. They latched on to Rosecrans' declaration in one of his more optimistic moments that, quote, if reinforcements come up soon, everything will come out right. Ulysses S. Grant, still out in Mississippi at Vicksburg after his capture of that place back in July, received urgent messages from Washington directing him to send whatever troops he could spare to Chattanooga, but such a movement would take time. The nearest federal force that might rapidly send reinforcements to Rosecrans was Ambrose Burnside's command, which was just 110 miles away in Tennessee, to the northeast of Chattanooga, at Knoxville. And in the immediate aftermath of Chickamauga, when Lincoln pressed Burnside to go to Rosecrans' aid, Burnside said he would do so, but only after he finished an operation he was planning against Jonesboro, Tennessee. An exasperated Lincoln couldn't contain his frustration with Burnside, 
wiring the general and saying, If you are to do any good to Rosecrans, it will not do to waste time with Jonesboro. Please do not lose a moment. But Burnside replied with excuses, delays, and questions which sorely tried the patience of his superiors in Washington. Halleck said, I telegraphed him 15 times to reinforce Rosecrans and the president three or four times. Finally, Edwin Stanton gave up on Burnside and set out to find troops elsewhere. The immediate catalyst for Stanton's actions seems to be several worrisome messages from Chattanooga that arrived in Washington on September 23rd. Late that night, well after 10 p.m., Stanton dispatched one of President Lincoln's secretaries, John Hay, out to the soldier's home to fetch Lincoln. To escape the heat and humidity of Washington, the Lincolns took to spending the summer months at a cottage on the grounds of the soldier's home, three miles away from the White House. The president would ride back and forth, working at the White House during the day while spending most nights out at the cottage. Exactly. At any rate, once Hay arrived at the cottage, he awakened Abraham Lincoln and conveyed Stanton's summons. The deeply worried Lincoln dressed hurriedly, mounted, and rode off with Hay toward the city, remarking to Hay that the Secretary of War had never sent for him like this. Others had similar reactions. Treasury Secretary Salmon Chase recalled, quote, The summons really alarmed me. I felt sure that a disaster had befallen us. When Lincoln, Halleck, Chase, Secretary of State William Seward, and several lesser officials were assembled, Stanton stated his business. Rosecrans, he said, needed help now. Burnside would not go, and troops from Grant's department were too far away. Then Stanton got to the point, saying, I propose to send 30,000 troops from the Army of the Potomac. Stanton reasoned that if Robert E. Lee could send Confederate soldiers from the Army of Northern Virginia to reinforce Braxton Bragg, then there was no reason George Meade couldn't send troops to Chattanooga from the Army of the Potomac. When Stanton stated that in five days' time he could put 30,000 troops with Rosecrans, Abraham Lincoln expressed disbelief. The president said, I'll bet that if the order is given tonight, the troops could not be got to Washington in five days. Stanton replied huffily that the matter had been carefully investigated and that he had been assured it could be done. But, he said, if 30,000 can't be sent, let 20,000 go. What Stanton was proposing was the greatest transportation event in the history of warfare up to that time. Never had so many troops been moved so far in so little time. It seemed impossible, and it would have been practically anywhere else in the world. But the U.S. rail network had grown tremendously in the 1850s, both in extent and organization, especially in the northern states. For what Stanton proposed, the track, locomotives, and rolling stock existed. More important, the know-how existed on the part of railroad executives, for coordinating the countless technical details involved in an operation this size. Indeed, Stanton had one of those railroad executives on hand as an expert witness to bolster his case. 
Incredibly, to those sitting around the table that night, the thing actually could be done, and after a couple of hours of discussion, Abraham Lincoln agreed that it should. At half past two that morning, the orders went out and the great endeavor began. The Army of the Potomac's two smallest corps, the 11th, commanded by Oliver Otis Howard, and the 12th, commanded by Henry Slocum, would form a detachment under the command of Major General Joseph Hooker. In all, they would number about 23,000 men. Hooker, who had been at loose ends since he was relieved from command a few days before the Battle of Gettysburg, immediately set to work with Howard and Slocum to make careful preparations for moving the men, artillery, and draft animals in an orderly and speedy fashion. Railroad officials did the same, giving no excuse to Stanton to have the military take over their lines, and proving that they could do the job better anyway. They skillfully forded the troops and their equipment, along with 3,000 horses and mules, and seven batteries of artillery, through Ohio to Indiana, to Louisville, Kentucky, then southward to Nashville, Tennessee, where they were pushed on to Bridgeport, Alabama. The entire journey was 1,160 miles, and was completed in nine days. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. While the Yankees rolled up their sleeves and moved heaven and earth to get reinforcements to Rosecrans, Braxton Bragg also got to work. But, unfortunately for the Confederate cause, Bragg's attention and energy wasn't focused on the Federals, but rather was focused on cleaning house within his Army's own high command. Chickamauga would be the Army of Tennessee's one great battlefield victory and was one of the Confederacy's proudest moments. Newspapers across the South trumpeted the success of Bragg's Army and painted it as a renewal of hope. 
In the aftermath of the disaster at Vicksburg and the defeat at Gettysburg just a few months earlier, news of the victory at Chickamauga inspired widespread joy throughout the Confederacy. Even greater success was anticipated as there seemed to be the real chance of regaining Chattanooga and much of Tennessee. By abandoning all of the high ground around Chattanooga in the days immediately following Chickamauga, Rosecrans seemed to give Bragg exactly what he had denied him in the battle itself, that is, an opportunity to cut the Federal Army's supply line and trap it in a potentially ruinous situation. But after moving the Army up and occupying the high ground relinquished by the Federals, and thereby placing Chattanooga in a state of limited siege, Braxton Bragg turned his attention inward to his antagonists and adversaries within the ranks of the Army of Tennessee's high command. We've already talked at length on several occasions about the toxic command environment within the Army of Tennessee, going back to Bragg's bitterness in the aftermath of the 1862 Kentucky Campaign, and how that anger and resentment was returned in spades by many of his subordinates. Confederate President Jefferson Davis had previously stepped in to try to diffuse the poisonous dysfunction that plagued the Army of Tennessee's high command. Davis's solution had been to send Joe Johnston to the Army in the spring of 1863 to make a show of looking into the situation and then remove Bragg from command. But although Johnston went and poked around, he flatly refused to relieve Bragg, even though he knew that's exactly what Jefferson Davis wanted to happen. Johnston made excuses to sidestep sacking Bragg, and in the end, Davis let the matter drop and left Braxton Bragg in command. That, of course, only allowed the spirit of bitterness and discontent among the Army's high command to fester and worsen. But in the aftermath of Chickamauga, Bragg seemed determined to take the bull by the horns and finally resolve the unhappy situation. And so, just two days after Chickamauga, Bragg sent a letter to his chief antagonist, Leonidas Polk, asking for an explanation as to why Polk had not obeyed Bragg's order for a day-dawn assault on the last day of the battle. Well, the bishop general realized what was coming, and so, instead of responding immediately, he began marshalling his own resources for a counterattack. Polk ignored Bragg's letter for almost a week, during which time he met with other high-ranking malcontents within the army to discuss the best way to get Jefferson Davis to relieve Bragg of command. The day after receiving Bragg's letter, Polk conferred with James Longstreet. Old Pete took little convincing, since he was already disenchanted with Bragg, due in no small part to the realization that Bragg wasn't going to carry out Longstreet's idea for a grand turning movement against the Federals in the aftermath of Chickamauga. Polk told Longstreet he was going to write a letter to his old friend Jefferson Davis, and he urged Longstreet to do the same. While Old Pete declined to contact Davis directly, he did agree to write to Confederate Secretary of War James Seddon. Accordingly, on September 26th, Longstreet penned a letter to Seddon, 
setting forth a litany of complaints against Bragg. The next day, the 27th, five days after he had first requested it, Bragg reiterated his request for Polk to explain his failure to carry out the day-dawn attack on the last day of the battle. When Polk finally answered on the 28th, he put all of the blame at D.H. Hill's feet. This stab in the back could hardly have pleased Hill, since the sour North Carolinian was one of the generals Polk had talked to within the last several days, and he had agreed with Polk that Bragg needed to go. Be that as it may, Bragg wasn't interested in Polk's excuses, and the very next day, on September 29th, he began cleaning house. He suspended Polk from command and sent him back to Atlanta. Polk departed the army immediately. Bragg also removed Thomas Hindman from command of his division. Bragg would never forgive Hindman for his failure before Chickamauga to close the trap on the Yankees at McLemore's Cove. Hindman was already absent from the army, having been wounded on the last day of the fighting at Chickamauga. Bragg's sacking of Polk fanned the flames of dissent within the army to near mutiny. During the first few days of October, a remarkable document, likely penned by Simon Bolivar Buckner, made the rounds of the Army's various headquarters. No less than 12 of Bragg's generals signed it, including Longstreet, D.H. Hill, and Patrick Claiborne. The document asked Jefferson Davis to remove Bragg from command because, the generals said, quote, the condition of his health unfits him to command an army in the field, end quote. But in reality, the document, among other charges, accused Bragg of inexcusably fumbling away the fruits of a great victory at Chickamauga. Davis was understandably troubled when he received this document on October 4th. He had already been concerned enough, after Bragg's sacking of Polk and Hindman, to send his close aide, James Chestnut, to find out what was going on. When Chestnut stopped in Atlanta on October 5th on his way to the Army and talked to Leonidas Polk, what he learned from Polk alarmed him so thoroughly that he wired Davis saying, quote, Your immediate presence in this Army is urgently demanded. In response, Davis set out from Richmond, reaching Atlanta himself on October 8th. He met with Polk, who made excuses and bitterly condemned Bragg. Despite their friendship, the Bishop General made little headway with Davis, who, at this point in time, wasn't inclined to replace Bragg. In fact, Davis seemed to think that once he was on the scene, he could smooth over the differences between Bragg and his subordinates and restore harmony to the Army of Tennessee. However, once he reached the Army, Jefferson Davis only made things worse by forcing a face-to-face confrontation between Braxton Bragg and his critics. On October 9th, after a lengthy meeting with Bragg behind closed doors, Davis invited James Longstreet, D.H. Hill, Simon Bolivar Buckner, and Benjamin Cheatham to join them. With Braxton Bragg still in the room, Jefferson Davis supposedly turned to the other officers and asked them to state, quote, their opinion of their commanding general, end quote. Well, 
A more awkward, unprofessional scene can hardly be imagined. But, apparently, Davis hoped that in Bragg's presence, the men would back down and express at least grudging support for their commander. That's just supposition, but it's hard to believe that Davis would be so naive to suppose that if each man actually aired his grievances in Bragg's presence, this would somehow heal the breach between the army's commanding general and his lieutenants. But, starting with Longstreet, air their grievances is precisely what each man proceeded to do. Old Pete asserted that any future operations were unlikely to be successful with the Army's present commander. He concluded by saying he thought, quote, Our commander could be of greater service elsewhere than at the head of the Army of Tennessee. With Longstreet having broken the ice, both Buckner and Cheatham offered similar views. It was D.H. Hill, though, who was most strident in his criticism of Bragg. Hill was famous for his temper, and it got the better of him this time, as his condemnation of Bragg became so insulting and abusive that Davis took offense and cut him off. Through all of this, Braxton Bragg had sat silently, staring at the wall. Davis concluded the meeting without announcing a decision, although almost immediately rumors began to circulate that perhaps Bragg wasn't going to be relieved after all. The next day, October 10th, Davis met individually with several of the complaining generals, something he probably ought to have done first. Longstreet, perhaps realizing the wind had shifted and they had gone too far the day before, supposedly offered his resignation, which Davis refused. Then, when Davis met with Buckner, riding along the crest of Missionary Ridge, the Kentuckian refused to retract his criticism of Bragg. Not until October 12th did Davis reveal his decision. In a public statement, he announced that Bragg would remain in command of the Army of Tennessee and declared that the general was, quote, worthy of all confidence, end quote. In supporting Bragg, Davis sustained the dismissals of Polk and Hindman, although he did manage to get Bragg to dismiss the charges against them, thus avoiding the embarrassment of having those officers tried by court-martial. As for D.H. Hill, he would be sent home to North Carolina to await reassignment. And to replace Polk, William Hardee was recalled to the Army of Tennessee from Mississippi. That, however, was as far as Davis would or could go. If Bragg was still unhappy that the other grumbling generals remained, then Davis told him, in effect, to deal with it, although Davis said he would rather not have to address anyone else being dismissed from the army. If Braxton Bragg couldn't replace his disloyal subordinates, he could still punish them through reorganization. And so brigades and divisions were shuffled around to create different formations, trying to place the worst malcontents within the commands of officers who were more favorably disposed to brag. For example, Cheatham's big division of five Tennessee brigades was broken up, and Simon Bolivar Buckner was demoted from corps command to leading a division. And so, even as the Federals settled into their lines and sought solutions to the problem of how to hold on to Chattanooga, 
the Yankees' greatest enemy in the days ahead would prove to be hunger. However, for the Confederates, as Davis departed, leaving the Army of Tennessee's high command in disarray, the rebels' greatest enemy seemed to be themselves. Because in the end, Jefferson Davis's visit solved nothing. The bitter stew of discontent would keep simmering, continuing to poison the high command of the Army of Tennessee. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Jefferson Davis's Generals, edited by Gabor Borat. This is a book of eight essays about, yes, you guessed it, Jefferson Davis's relationships with some of his key generals. One of the essays, authored by Stephen Woodworth, is titled, Davis, Bragg, and Confederate Command in the West. You can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we wrap up this episode, we want to give a shout out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade and thank them for their support of the podcast. So a big thank you to Clarence F., William B., Peter D., and Scott B. And thanks to Nell J. for her recent donation. Thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.